This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox. Good morning, Marissa Lennox and for Libby's Nimer today. Happy Tuesday. And you know what that means. The recovering politicians panel is here. Top of mind, this business about the Arrive Can app. If you've let that memory fade, I'll remind you that was the COVID-19 tool that the government used to keep track of cross-border travelers up until very recently. Millions of dollars spent to develop and maintain this thing. According to a report, the company that Ottawa hired to build the app subcontracted out its work to six outside companies. Surely, surely there was a better, more efficient use of those dollars. And speaking of contractors and the Liberals and your taxpayer money, since Prime Minister Trudeau took power, the federal government has awarded over $100 million in contracts to McKinsey, a global consulting firm based in the U.S. with Swanky offices here in Toronto, just off Bloor near Young. Now, I will say hiring consultants is something every government does. But according to public accounts data from Public Services and Procurement Canada, the Liberals spent 30 times more money on McKinsey services than Stephen Harper's Conservatives did. Not only that, sources inside Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada have expressed concern about McKinsey's growing influence on their policy without public knowledge. So who's really running the show up there? Is it the politician we elected or the consultants that he hired? We'll get reaction from the panel in just a moment. But first, the numbers to call 416-360-0740 and toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now the Recovering Politicians Panel. Let's welcome Lisa Raitt, former deputy leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Peggy Nash, former Ontario NDP MPP, and George Smitherman, former health minister and deputy premier of the Ontario Liberals. It's good to have you all here. Good morning. Good, here, Martha. good afternoon. <laughs> Lisa, I'll begin with you. And I think it's a fair question. Who's really running the show up in Ottawa? Well, I'll answer it with this, with this response. Um, the the, the elected officials are responsible for the running of the show. Now, that's the key. I mean, we have to, you have to hold those who are elected to living, uh, to perform in cabinet and to be the prime minister. They, they're the ones who are ultimately accountable. So they're the ones that are running the show. And I get troubled whenever I hear a minister or even the prime minister say, well, these are, these, these are the issues of the officials. You know, there's no daylight between the two. You are responsible as an elected official for all of the decisions and all of the non-decisions that are taken by the public service. And, and is it a big job? Sure it is. Absolutely it is. But everyone competes to get that job. And when you do get that job, you actually have to fulfill on it. So continuously blaming the public sector as if nobody's in charge of them, I, I find to be, uh, I find to be, uh, you know, I, I don't find it to be authentic in terms of of what the reality is. You know, Peggy, consultants are nothing new for government, but the McKinsey contracts seem to be on a whole other level. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, thank goodness the two reporters from Radio-Canada really exposed the extent of the role of McKinsey and its relationship with the federal liberal government. Um, I agree with Lisa that it's it's very troubling because while technically we are supposed to have accountability from our elected officials, where's the accountability with McKinsey? They're saying every you know every request for information is proprietary. We can't get access. Uh, they're not even responding now to emails, um, and they're clearly because they're a private organization. There is no public accountability, whereas. Radio-Canada has shown that uh, through reports, uh, confidential reports from the immigration officials, or immigration staff, that what McKinsey provided uh, was often boilerplate advice that 
others internally could have provided, but their big ask was to hit a target of uh, uh, 500,000 new immigrants. And clearly the government's following that path, but much of the other uh, advice and recommendations clearly could have been done internally. But there's this notion that somehow the private sector always does it better. It really is disrespectful to our public service, to whom uh, we need to hold to account. That's interesting, George. I mean, what's striking to me is, and and Peggy mentioned, the firm was hired in part to transform immigration. And, uh, you know, there's a huge backlog of millions of people in the system and a processing time of more than five years. I mean, where's the line between hiring consultants to support you in your efforts and literally handing entire projects over to to them, it would seem? You know, I think this uh, this really is at the heart of the matter is that uh, the operational government has concluded frequently that it's more adroit to get outside assistance, to be able to move more rapidly. In my experience, that is a move also in a certain sense, the mindset behind the agency model, which governments also rely upon. And my experience in political life has been that the biggest crises and spending challenges and uh, scandals and the like are, you know, typically created in these uh, in these kind of environments. But I do think it comes from a kind of a, a haste to get operational uh, programs up and running or to get decisions into the hopper. Lisa, why would a government turn to private consultant firms instead of their own workers? Like, what are the kinds of things they would typically contract out. Lisa, you there? All right, let's put that question to Peggy. Hi, I'm right here. Oh. I'm right here. Can oh. you hear me now? I can hear you now. Sorry, you must have been on mute. Sorry, Marissa. Uh, moved, moved to a wrong place in the house. <laughs> so, um, look, from a very honest place, sometimes the federal public service will come to you and say, we don't have an expertise in this area, or we don't have the the availability of the bodies to get this research done in the short amount of time that you need to have it done. Therefore, we recommend that we get some outside help, a consultant. That happens all the time, usually very, very small contracts, and it makes a lot of sense, and it's at the request of, of the of the actual public service. Where we get into danger is the stuff that both Peggy and George just pointed out, which is when they become the go-to. And I'll flip it on its head for a minute and just say, in the, in the corporate world, what a McKinsey will do then is take all the information that they have been able to mine out of the public service, who's in charge, what are the things that they do, what the org charts are like, how the government works, what their decision-making process is, which are tangential to the actual project that they're working on, but then they repackage that and then they sell it to other clients and they use it as part of their pitch. Well, we have experience with the government of Canada doing these kinds of things. And that's the that's the issue for me. I mean, McKinsey and, and a lot of companies will benefit greatly from their exposure to the government and how the government works. And then they'll balance off of that or they'll platform off of that to make money in other places. So continuously going back to the same group is just reaffirming and bolstering that kind of claim that the that the that McKinsey will have to other clients in the world. So not only do you make the hundred million or whatever off of the Canadian government, you use that and you make it around the world as well. All right. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I, I do want to ask Peggy, because Pierre Polyev's called it out, a parliamentary committee has voted to, for a probe into these contracts. What accountability, if any, will, will come out of that? I mean, who's following the money here? Well, uh, thank goodness that we're going to have this study of the contracts, because I think where there's smoke, there's fire, there's more to dig out, you know, a recent book by a couple of New York Times reporters looked at McKinsey, and just as as Lisa was saying, exactly the same thing. They were selling their services both to the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. and tobacco companies. They were able to sell to tobacco companies their inside uh, understanding of how the FDA FDA policy was uh, was evolving and. Uh, those business practices, while legal, really, you know, question the validity of, uh, you know, the, what appears to be a conflict of interest, that they're not held to the same accountability as governments are. 
So, and, and the government of France now is in trouble for the role of McKinsey. McKinsey that made uh, millions of dollars for uh, in the selling and marketing of OxyContin for Purdue. So uh, clearly we need to examine these contracts and see exactly what they were advising. We don't know exactly what advice McKinsey was giving the federal government. Wouldn't that be interesting to find out? And uh, first of all, and secondly, is the federal government following their advice? And what value are we getting for all this money that public dollars that are being spent on McKinsey? I think Canadians deserve to know. Hopefully this parliamentary committee will find out. Well, it sounds like from anonymous internal sources, uh, they had a good amount of influence. All right, let's take a call now. Pat in Toronto. Sorry. You're on the line. Can I just quickly say on accountability, I mean, we're part and parcel of the evidence that it's going on. That's very excellent. It, with respect to McKinsey, I would just say $100 million is a lot of money, but a lot of money over a long period of time. I would like to see kind of like, what's the comparison with the other big five or six consulting firms? Is that number actually inordinately out of whack? Mm-hmm. And the only other thing I would say is that at least in this case, it does seem that they've been attached to a very discernible public policy outcome related to immigration, which I can tell you as a citizen of downtown Toronto seems clearly evident, uh, seems clearly evident to me. So maybe we'll actually find that their ever efforts have been tied to something with a really discernible output because it's not always the case that we find that in our expenditure accountability examinations either. Mm. All right, let's take a a call now. Pat in Toronto, you're on the line. Yes, the answer is very simple. Turn it over to the Auditor General. These are the people that know how to investigate. Do not turn it over to a parliamentary committee. The Auditor General are are there and they are competent and they know what they're doing. And government hates auditors because they get to the facts. You know what's going through my mind? How many millions, if not billions, were spent on the payroll system at the federal government? And what's ever happened with that? I mean, I, I, I remember the number. I think I stopped at 500 million. But I mean, I mean, has anybody ever dug into that? I mean, this is a repeat all the time, and nobody follows what the Auditor General says to do. Mm. Lisa, I'll get you to react to Pat and then uh, and then we'll move on. Thanks, yeah. Pat. So Pat is absolutely correct. I mean, as a minister, I always dreaded hearing from the Auditor General. I don't hate them, but they always did come in to help point out the issues that any minister or deputy minister had. So that makes uh, it makes an awful lot of sense to me that they would be able to to do something like that and see whether or not the contracts were awarded appropriately. Number one, but secondly making sure that the outcomes were what were promised. All right. Speaking of contracts, there's now a review of the millions of dollars that was spent on developing the Arrive Can app after a report in The Globe revealed that the company uh, or that a company was hired to build the apps, that the company that was hired to build the app rather subcontracted out its work to six outside companies. George, uh, you know, first of all, is there not a committee or some sort of process that will look at a contract like this very closely and make sure that the money is being used in the most efficient way? Well, I I actually think to the caller's uh, question or comment a minute ago, this is the one that's more likely to provoke that kind of analysis. At the start of it, how anyone would have believed that $80,000 was a credible starting point, that should have been a red flag right from the beginning. It had so many uh, symptoms of the uh, gun registry from way back when, when someone lowballed the cost estimate, that got locked into the landscape. And by the time they were done, it was so many times a multiple. The only thing I will say about the Arrive Can is I used it when I landed coming back from Florida recently, and it really did make my process through the uh, uh, rest of the customs uh, clearance very, very seamless. So maybe we can get a bit of legacy value out of it. But I really think that one is going to get an in-depth examination. You can only excuse so much by the urgency of COVID. 
Well, and that's a good point. I mean, Lisa, the argument's been made that, oh, well, we needed to act quickly in order to keep people safe. But there's always to some degree an urgency in Ottawa. I mean, I don't think that's an excuse for taxpayer waste. What do you think? No, but I would be asking questions about whether or not this would have happened had everyone been, everyone been housed in the same office building kind of thing. If people were, if people were really focused on their, their work and within sitting within their departments, if, if this is something that happened as a result of too many hands at too many different places, talking on teams meetings and, and maybe through Slack, but really no one really one person understanding the entire process. And George is right. This is something that will, we will get to the bottom of. Why not in-house, Peggy? I mean, why filter through a contractor, which then subsequently led to six subcontractors? Well, it seems uh, that governments across the country need to do a better job in updating their IT capacity. Uh, George mentioned the uh, pay, or pardon me, the caller mentioned the pay system for the federal government, which was an absolute disaster still after God knows how much money has been invested in trying to fix it. It's still not fixed. Um, so clearly there is an issue with a need to upgrade IT capacity throughout our, our public service. Uh, however, was there no one within the federal government that could have done what these two guys working in their own little office did, which was subsequently contract to others the creation of this app. Um, I believe me, I could not create an app. Sounds complicated, but hiring people to be able to do that seems something that our public service is completely capable of doing. And it, to me, is breathtaking that this was contracted out to two people who made like $44 million or whatever the final amount is, um, really for hiring other people. It seems really outrageous. Yeah. And even if the two people said up front, I couldn't do this, I mean, the the government should have found a different consulting firm to do it rather than it being subcontracted out and the excess money that you end up spending on that. Um, I think think that's significantly the point. Like, I don't really agree with the line that says, well, I said could have done it in-house because we must reflect on the fact that that department was the one that was also trying to find find N95 masks and to get vaccines going and to get ventilators going and to get that other tracking app going. So I don't think it's reasonable to say, oh, well, there were a couple of guys over in comms that could have pulled that off in a weekend necessarily. But choosing that $80,000 starting point with some small company for what was obviously going to be a complicated project, if for no other reason than it was integrating with global, you know, global activity and the like. So that was kind of the bit to me that looked really, really odd. Is like, how could how could you decide that $80,000 was the right starting point and the two-person operation was going to pull this off? for you. All right, moving on. After months of tenuous negotiations and mudslinging, it sounds like the feds and the provinces are close to a deal on health care transfers with premiers looking to meet in Ottawa next month in the hopes that this new money will be reflected in the upcoming federal budget. Lisa, it sounds like good news. Yeah, and there's no political option to not get a deal, quite frankly. Um, Canadians, uh, no matter where you are in this country, expect their governments to work together on health care, given the state uh, that it is currently in and what the experiences are of Canadians. And as a result, any political party knows that unless they get a deal, they're going to be punished. There's no gain in beating up one party over another um, as a result of saying they're not cooperating over whether or not they're going to give up information or how they're going to spend the money. That's all over now. People are very attuned to the fact that the system needs to be fixed. And parties are going to have, governments are going to have to show that they're on the side of fixing it, not on the side of worrying about what the other party is going to be doing with the money. Do you think that's why, Peggy, we're seeing this sort of mutual truce between Premier Ford and the, and the Prime Minister? Absolutely. You can't have people dying in emergency. You can't have people heartsick with worry about their kids not getting attention in a hospital and not hold public officials accountable. It does contrast with the uh, contractors, by the way, who are kind of insulated from that. But 
there is tremendous public pressure on governments to work together to uh, help our healthcare system run appropriately and deliver for Canadians wherever they live across the country. I would add the caveat that the Prime Minister should be ensuring that uh, provinces are complying with the Canada Health Act and delivering services uh, through public or not-for-profit facilities so that we keep the profit motive out of our core health care delivery. And I think that is the role of the federal government to ensure that we are getting that that kind of quality of delivery uh, throughout the system, and uh, it'll and and also accountability. And I think this is uh, what the federal government has been calling for: is that people have to see measurable outcomes. It also speaks to uh, IT capacity. That my God, I don't know why my doctor has to fax a pharmacy to get a prescription filled. Uh, hopefully we're going to see some modernization of our healthcare system. So, you know, you mentioned sort of the, the privatization. George, do you, that's obviously a looming political discussion around sort of privatization. We're seeing it in some of the provinces. Do you think that the feds could insert themselves into this debate, maybe withhold funds for things they don't the thing like? About, the, the, thing, <clears throat> the thing about it is that bothers me quite a bit, and I, I like Peggy a lot. But the NDP is distorting reality here about the Canada Health Act for their own purposes, or they don't understand it. Because the Canada Health Act and other legislation, including a bill I passed in Ontario, prevents using your credit card to leap to the front of the line. That's two-tier medicine. That's not allowed under the Canada Health Act. And that's not Doug Ford's proposal. I think Doug Ford's proposal should be criticized because they're going to spend more to go and create private sector for-profit capability than actually just investing those resources in the public health care system. That's clear. The unit cost for these procedures is going to be more than they could get within the public system. I think that's a choice. George, I completely agree with you on that. We are in agreement. We are in violent agreement on that point. Okay, I'm so sorry then if if I misinterpreted your... uh, misinterpreted your position. You know, I'd be investing in the Kensington Eye Clinic down on College Street that is an example of a not-for-profit model rather than creating more capacity uh, and paying more per unit. I think that's where you attack the Doug, the Doug Ford policy. But I'm in significant agreement with these two folks that Ontario, the government of, and the Justin Trudeau government, they need to produce results. Medicare is the national Canadian value that is a provincial constitutional responsibility to deliver, and it's thus ever complicated. Lisa? Yeah, I don't think um, Canadians who are on a list to get their knee replaced just because they're going to go to a clinic with their OHIP card rather than a hospital with their OHIP card are going to see it as privatization of, of health care at all. Um, and I think knowing that you're moving up on the list is going to be the relief that they're seeking. It, we really are talking about a situation where politicians have to respond to the very acute needs of the Canadian public and the Ontario public. And if you don't respond to it, you're going to find yourself uh, on the wrong end of an election ballot box. Yeah, I mean, I think he's desperate at this point. All right, lastly, before I let you go, the new Angus Reid survey indicates Canadians strongly support COVID testing requirements for travelers coming in from China. One in eight believe the policy to be racist. You know, I just question the efficacy of these things because, you know, what's the point when there are so many false negatives, false positives, and apparently there's a proper way to swap for this new variant? The thing's here to stay. I don't know. Those are my thoughts. Uh, What are yours, George? It was just an extension of the same policy that uh, was applied to Africa. Uh, And it's only justifiable on the basis of additional risks associated with variants and creating a line of defense and the earliest warning possible. I think that all of the science around variants it have to be relied upon to justify the policy. And I can see certainly why some people would say that science is so wobbly that it does create, you know, kind of racist ramifications. But I think the, the, the unknown of the variant uh, provides the backstopping for this as a reasonable policy. Peggy, it's been called discriminatory racist. Do you believe there's any merit to that? 
Um, yeah, I guess I, I share a concern about it. I understand that people are uh, seeing media reports of the explosion of COVID in China because of uh, a reversal of the policy there. I have no clue at what point the population is vaccinated or how effective that vaccination is. Um, uh, but I, 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 you know, I think if you're going to do a screening program, maybe screen everybody because I don't know. I don't know about you, but over the holidays, I got COVID for the first time. So it's still floating around out there. Don't say um, that, Peggy. I don't want to go back yeah. to screening. <laughs> no, I mean, this is it. And so how how effective is it going to be? I understand the concerns about a racist policy is, is you know, because somebody could get on a plane in Italy or, or Brazil and have COVID. We're not testing them. I, I don't know how effective it is. I think if somebody has symptoms, they they shouldn't travel. They should be responsible. They should be responsible. Yeah. I mean, for me, Lisa, it's just another rule for the sake of a rule. So in this case, I don't think that this is a policy that should be pushed by public sentiment. I mean, there are some things that you, you want to rely upon the public to make sure you're going in the right direction. I don't think this is one of them. And the reason being, as George pointed out, that there are a lot of there's a lot of input information that goes into this decision. But the biggest, I think, uh, director of all in this is uh, what's happening in Europe and the United States. And there are obligations on Canadian lawmakers to make sure that they're actually following with what your what your partners are doing from a safety and security point of view. So uh, interesting information coming from the Canadian public. But that's not who the government should be listening to in this case when it comes to making policy that jives with the rest of the world and what is best best for the overall safety of the country. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Lisa Raitt, Peggy Nash, George Smitherman. It's good to have you. It was good to have you guys on. Thank you. Thank you. When we come back, Ross McLean joins me to discuss the very latest attack on two TTC employees. What's the city come to? That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox. Well, welcome back, Marissa Lennox. And for Libby Snymer, two TTC employees have been left injured after as many as 10 to 15 kids. Not adults, they say. The police described them as young people targeted them in a swarming attack, the second such attack by youth in this city in recent months. So with increased violence on the TTC and on our streets, do you feel like our city's becoming more unsafe? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. We'll welcome my next guest, Ross McLean, Toronto-based crime specialist. Ross, it's so good to speak with you. And hello again, because, you know, in a previous life, you and I used to work together. So it's good to speak with you. Ross, you're on the line. Ross, yes, you, you have me there, Marissa? There you are. Hey, Ross. Yeah, hey, no, it's good to be back <laughs> with you. I always enjoyed uh, being interviewed by you because your questions are to the point to something that matters. Well, thank you. Let's talk about this latest saga with, you know, two TTC employees uh, being attacked by some 10 to 15 kids. What is the latest on this? Well, I mean, the latest is the police are still investigating and looking for the kids that did this, but... Uh, what it is, it's the latest of a string of uh, of crimes happening to innocent people across the city, no matter where you are. And I think it's quite frankly showing a real decay in the city that we're not able to cope with this. And uh, it's to the point that, you know, when you get enough of a rotten apple in a barrel, you're not saving the barrel after that. So we better figure out if we're going to try to turn this around or not, uh, Marissa. This is the second swarming attack in, what, the last month or two. I mean, do you think that there's some kind of copycat mentality going on? Uh, you know, who could, just weeks ago, eight girls attacked a homeless man that left him dead. No, it absolutely is, is copycat. And, and I actually mentioned years ago that I saw that these sort of attacks were taking place over in Europe particularly over in France, where it was a swarming. And they would swarm innocent people. The idea was to get them, kick the legs out from underneath them, then stomp them, kick them in the chest, kick them in the head. I mean, it's a really vile way of going about attacking people. And when that was coming, I said, that's going to be coming here soon enough. 
And what's happening with these uh, with the young people today, uh, Marissa, is this is what they're seeing on their social media. They're seeing the streams of, uh, you know, the girls gone wild in restaurants, throwing things over and fighting and beating each other up. And the same thing with the swarmings of the guys. So that's what's being replicated here. They're replicating what they're seeing on social media. And there's seemingly no controls over the kids these days that they have such a lack of respect for you know, life and people. So that you think that's the, in part one of the roots of all of this is social media. And, you know, we're seeing crime go up as a result. A lot of people I've heard commentary, people will point to to homelessness as part of the issue. But, you know, as we just mentioned in the previous case, it was the homeless who was actually the victim. No, it's, it's yeah, it's it's not homelessness that's causing this. The people that are doing this, these kids, like, look at this, this swarming of the TTC drivers, uh, you know, end of school time. Guess what's right down the road from where this happened? A Catholic school, right? And anybody who knows who's, who's been involved with the Catholic schools, they're not the same as they used to be 20 odd years ago. They're, there's just not the same. So this is likely where the kids came out of and they get involved in their swarming. And the drivers are really, I've actually spoken with someone who uh, received some messages Uh, from some drivers. The drivers are quite terrified because they're out there thinking, how am I supposed to defend myself? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to deal with this? Am I going to be backed up? And they know what's going to happen some more. So some of the drivers are actually starting to think about arming themselves with different things from from bear spray, pepper spray, or something else, because they don't want to go home in an ambulance, uh, you know, because they're just doing their job. So something needs to start taking place here with this being dealt with. Is it even legal to carry bear spray? It is if you use it to fight off bears and you just happen to have it with you when someone attacks you, then you pull it out. At least you tell, you would mention to the police that you had it for dealing with bears. You're not allowed to carry those things to go against people. But what are these drivers supposed to do if they're not being backed up uh, for doing things? I think we're going to have, the police are going to have to get together a program uh, with together with the union, and they're going to have to start dealing with these kids. And a lot of it starts, Marissa, in in the schools. We we took the police officers out of the schools. Uh, the kids are being taught to disrespect their parents, not listen to the parents anymore, listen to the teachers. There's no discipline. The fighting and bullying going on in the schools is tremendous these days. I just spent yesterday talking with a psychologist and a police officer who do, who deals with that. He says the bullying that's going on and the girls are just as bad as the boys. and The boys are egging the girls on. What about that unprovoked attack on the 89-year-old woman? I mean, like, to what extent is mental health an issue here? Well, you have to look at mental health. You always do. I mean, I always consider anybody who resorts to unnecessary violence to have a bit of a mental health problem. It's all on a continuum, if you will, for doing it. But that, once again, it just goes to the lack of respect for life. It's something that people are seeing more and more. The videos, you can see them where they're knocking over old people. Um, and I'll just, I'm just going to mention one more thing here. Let me jump back to this, Marissa. This attack on the TTC drivers, this is like, I think, the third or so in the last little bit. Mm-hmm. It just might be that they've got a game out for going after TTC drivers out in that end and sharing it on social media. Mm-hmm. It just might be that these kids have a game going on with this. This is the sort of level that we're at today. I mean, you wonder. One of my panelists uh, said yesterday that what's happening in Toronto is only getting better for crime reporters. You know, do you believe well, that to be true? Is this is this getting worse? It is getting worse. I used to uh, I, I worked with uh, Joe Warmington before we had a radio show, and we used to go into homicide scenes before doing the show. At times, there were so many of them, and we're still going the same way. We're blasé about it. We're completely blasé about it here in this city. And if we were to see the videos instead of the beatings on some of these people, on on the bodies and the bleeding and the CPR that police officers are trying to do on them, everybody would would become a lot more real than just, oh, somebody was shot in the West End. That doesn't really register with people emotionally. Mm -hmm. And we have to get people more involved in caring about each other in the city. And right now, there's not a whole lot of care going on. And uh, really, I think that between the schools... And the police, uh, they have to pick it up to deal with these out-of-control kids. We have a couple calls coming in. Let's get to one of them. Jody in Toronto. You're on the line, Jody. Hi, thank you for taking my call. No, our city is totally unsafe, and it's getting worse. And it isn't just on the TTC. It's everywhere. Yesterday, coming out of the grocery store, 
I watched Lady being mugged and her car being taken away from her and her being taken to the hospital in a in an ambulance. If we talk about uh, looking at these things, what is the root cause, the root cause? Uh, Mir Tori keeps talking about root cause. We have to look at who's raising these kids. That's the root cause. Wow. Thank you for your call, Jody. Ross, I'll get you to respond to that. Yeah, no, she, she is right. There's about respect and respect for life. And what's been going on in our schools, I mean, you've seen the reports where the teachers are scared to go into the schools. Girls are getting uh, sexually assaulted when they go to the washroom. They have to institute the buddy system. Teachers are scared of being beaten up. And why? Because we're playing this little soft, soft, soft game, and we're raising kids that have problems. Listen, I'll tell you one thing that this copper said to me the other day who deals with this, and he very much has a heart for seeing that this sort of stuff gets squared away. He's a really good copper. He told me what all these kids are really yelling out for when they're behaving badly like this. He says they're calling out to get some structure in their life. Hmm. They want to have some reasonable adults that they can trust who can give them structure instead of being able to run feral like what they're doing. And so it does start in the homes with the schools uh, and, and that sort of thing. If you don't change the attitude, these, these people do not get any easier to deal with as they get older. I really do agree with you on that one. But from the perspective of the police, I mean, what can they do? What can the city do? I mean, do we need to change the threshold by which we scoop these people up? The punishment needs to be better at fitting the crime. What say you? i tell you what I would do. I would take some of our toughest, best fighting uh, martial arts trained police officers. I would put them in TTC driver's uniforms and I would send them out to the areas where these sort of things are happening. And I'd put a couple of other old clothes officers sitting and sleeping in the back of the bus looking like they're not doing anything. And when these kids start jumping and take, trying to take a beating on a driver, they will get arrested and they will either go away uh, nicely or they'll go away getting what they deserve on the way out. And it won't be open season on TTC drivers. They'll never know who it is that they're spitting on or taking a shot at or firing an air pellet gun at. That's that's one of the things I would look at doing. A caller said yesterday, more cameras. Yeah, the, you know, they don't care about cameras. It, what happens is these these kids, they, they're YOLO, you only live once. They, they don't think of consequences. They only know how to think in the moment. There's never been any consequences for them for any other bad behavior they've done. So they're not thinking about consequences when they're doing this. They're just not thinking. Otherwise, why would you do that? So having a camera just records the the attacks on the driver. You need to find the ones who are doing this, and there needs to be an example set, and we need to deal with it. Bob Renson and the former senator brought in laws actually to increase the penalties if you attack a TTC driver. Mm. So we need to really start standing up, and society needs to start saying it's not acceptable to disrespect people in human life this way anymore. Our, Our call board is completely lit up, so let's get to some more callers. Brian in Mimico, you're on the line. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that one of the major problems, other than social media, which is encouraging them to do these things, they see it happening, is the dumbing down of our education system. We've gone from where we used to get discipline, we get the strap, whatever, you go see the vice principal, who was always a man, because he was the disciplinarian, but oh no, we can't have people being disciplined in schools anymore, and... uh you know, we can't have these rough sports that are going on anymore. It's just gotten so bad, and I'm sorry to say it, but it's because it's, there's so many women running the education system oh, Okay, now. Brian, not good with that one. Uh, listen, what I'll say is no advocate for the strap, but I do think the big class sizes uh, lead to children falling through the cracks. I'm not sure what that woman comment is about. Next, let's go to Rosie on the line. Rosie, you're on the line. Go ahead. Hi there. I just commented to your producer. There's a movie back in the 70s called A Clockwork Orange. It's actually coming to life now. Uh, the youth are taking over, and I agree with everything your guest said, and I guess that's about it. But the point is, it's not the fault of the children. It's the parents. Mm. They're all entitled. They're all spoiled. And I do mean all. You don't see any without iPhones on the, on the bus, or in fact, if they take the bus, that would be a big surprise because we get children everywhere they go until they're old enough to drive and then they get a car. So I guess that's about it. But it's a sad situation that we find ourselves in. All right. Thanks, Rosie. And you know what I will say, Ross? I am the disciplinarian in my family. I discipline my children. Oh. I'm not really sure what he's talking about, women running these schools. Oh, no, More I, women I, need I, to be running these schools. 
he, he's not saying it right. I'll tell you, I just watched this thing the other day. Everybody is scared of mom. Mom is the first line. That's of right. And if, in every family, you're going to deal with mom. You don't want to do that. Then if mom says, okay, your father would deal with you if they, you know, if you have a father, but uh, mom's pretty good. Mama bears and tiger mothers, mothers who care about their children and their future. Uh, trust me, you don't want to mess with them, but we need to empower those women who do that, not hold them up on charges or, or have complaints against them when that these problems are going on. There, so. Are there any cities doing it right? I mean, I'm thinking about New York and Chicago. No, none of them are doing it right. They're, they're going so crazily downhill. It's unbelievable. The shootings in Chicago, I just watched one on my social media this morning of a guy shooting a guy about six times and walking up to him and standing over him, putting one in his head. I mean, that's Chicago. In New York, that's why people fled New York. They've all gone to Florida. Yeah. I mean, the great trans people are voting with their feet uh, with what's happening. That's why we have a lot of people moving out of Toronto and moving out west and, and other things as well. People, it, it just not right when it's not safe to be walking down the street in your own city. Yeah. It's just not right. All right, Ross, we'll have to leave it there. Good to have you on the program. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Marissa. Bye now. And when we come back, the most bizarre story I have heard all year, the woman who's lost luggage, I'm saying that in air quotes because it wasn't lost, was given to charity by Air Canada. She joins me for her personal account. That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox. Welcome back. Marissa Lennox in for Libby's Nimer. Imagine taking a return flight home to Canada from your honeymoon only to find out that your luggage is not there and that it was given to a charity by a third party luggage handler hired by Air Canada. I mean, what? That's exactly what happened to Nikita Reese and her husband when they returned to Pearson International Airport on September 10th from a vacation in Greece. She joins me now. Nikita, it's good to have you on the program. I hope your trip at the very least was worth it. Yes. Oh, my gosh. It was amazing. It was a trip of a lifetime. Okay. Well, take us back. You arrive home from your trip to Greece. There was a connecting flight in Montreal, which is where the lost baggage saga begins. Tell us briefly just sort of how you got to where you are today. So thankfully for our air tag, we were able to watch our luggage move from Montreal to Etobicoke over the last, well, it was only a matter of 21 days, actually, and then it sat for three and a half months. So... You know, we did our due diligence. We filed everything we had to do. I extensively filled out the report of what's in the baggage so it would be easily identifiable. And here we were until yesterday, still without luggage. Until yesterday, you got your luggage back. Okay, so three and a half months and all the while you were reaching out to Air Canada. How was that? How were their representatives in handling this? (laughs) Horrendous. I was getting nowhere. Unfortunately, their representatives actually are in India. They're not even here. So... When you call, all they do is take your file case number and put it in the system, which you can do online yourself under World Tracer. So anything they were getting, I was already, I already knew. So I was kind of at a loss of who to go to. So I decided to take matters into my own hand and walk back into Pearson. At which point, what happened? We spoke with the manager of baggage there who provided us with some great insight. He's fantastic. I have to shout out him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he gave us some insight in how the process works. And that's where we're like, there's no way based on the process he just said that our luggage was not matched to its owner. Mm -hmm. And let alone, it should have been held on to it for at least 60 days in which ours was not. It was 31. So that's when we we were like, things are a little fishy here. And we decided to investigate a little further, head to the unit. And that's when we got the police involved based on what we found. So for the listeners, I mean, the reason you were able to track your bag is because you had an air tag in it. So you could actually see when it was moving from Montreal to Toronto. Yeah. And when that happened, you were able to follow it, which you found it in a storage facility. Is that right? Yeah, it was a public storage facility. So this is the part of the story where I am gobsmacked because as I understand, you guys looked through the storage facility and what did you see? So my husband walked up and down the aisles until his tag over was over top of his location. So he peered through like the three quarter of an inch space in between the door um, to find eventually luggage pushed all the way up to the door, floor to ceiling, wall to wall. And that's when he was like, oh, well, my luggage is definitely in there. But of course, we don't own that unit. So in terms of privacy, they couldn't open it for us. So that's where I, we had to get the police involved and get a warrant. And did, all the, that. did the police say what the luggage was doing there? 
So when they contacted Air Canada the first time, Air Canada stated that it was owned by third-party baggage handlers. Then they went and uh, went through about 100, they said, bags, in which one wasn't ours because there was about 400 left. And then Air Canada stated it was actually owned by charity and our luggage was donated under legal means. The ch- so all of the bags in this room, floor-to-ceiling, wall-to-wall luggage, is now owned by charity. Is that what you're saying? That's what they're saying, in which I'm about to go get the police report to see what this charity actually is. But when we talked to the manager of who called us yesterday, who called my husband yesterday, the manager of bag, air, um, air Baggage, I believe, it's, it's Air Canada's third representative that delivers baggage. It's the global baggage team. That's what it's called. Mm-hmm. He said that they found it in a warehouse and had to look through 1,200 bags, but they found it in less than 48 hours. So wow. Nothing adds up. I'm just as confused or more confused now than I've almost ever been. Okay, so you mentioned the cops are involved. Uh, will charges be laid and against no, who? No, because they're not involved anymore. They said, we've helped you all that we can. We can't seize these bags. And so, they've dropped. They're done. So now that you have your bag back, uh, w- what happens? What happens to the rest of the bags in that facility? And that's, you know what, and that's why we're still fighting. Like, our call to action, uh, we're... We, our call to action is to get in touch with the CTA and the Ministry of Transportation because policy and bill of rights and things like that need to change. Like passenger rights need to be above a lot of things, above where it is now. And we we plan on taking this legally. And, mm-hmm. and we are discussing with a lawyer because it's not finished. Mm-hmm. Great. We got our bag back. Awesome. But what about those other 1,200 people apparently of this warehouse of baggage and it's the principle at this point. They well, breached their policy. Not just the principle. I think it's worth mentioning that you're a working woman, your time is valuable, and how much of your time has been spent on this nonsense? Oh my goodness. <laughs> now more than ever, but you know, I get on hold seven times for about an hour each time to get in contact with a Air Canada representative that's across in a different country in which they were not able to help me. So there's seven, seven and a half hours alone. Mm-hmm. Do you think so? You- it's just time adds up and time is valuable. And I feel like Air Canada doesn't see that as it's not valuable to them. Do you think that you would have been successful in resolving this issue, which is to say to get your luggage back if it weren't for plat- social media platforms? I know you took to TikTok and then also no. went to... Not, not at all, because they weren't respond. The only way I could get a response from Air Canada was through media. They still haven't. I haven't heard from them. Hmm. Now, the pre- has the president I'm- of Air Canada said anything about this case? No. It's been like front page no. of no way. I've got the only contact we've had, which we now know is he's he's an employee of Air Canada. So he's not necessarily their third party is um, the guy who called us yesterday that said we were going to get our baggage. Right. That's the closest upper that we've talked to when it comes to Air Canada. Everyone else has just been a wreck that doesn't live here. They live elsewhere. Okay, so I'm, I am sure that your story resonates with a lot of people. What has been the reaction on social media? I'm curious. Ugh, the support has been like nothing else. Like I would say out of 100%, there's probably 97% of people that are behind us. People who are like, I'm experiencing the same thing. What do I do? I'm getting messages 24-7 of people like, what emails? Where do I go to? How do I take this further? And and people are just supporting us to say, don't stop. Keep going. Mm -hmm. Like, great. You have your baggage, but this isn't done. Like, keep pushing because this is, it's not just for us anymore. It's for every other person. It's for every Canadian that travels with Air Canada. And it's for every person that's lost baggage that they still don't have and can get no contact with this airline. Mm -hmm. When you... You you said you received your luggage back. Is that right? Mm-hmm. When you received the luggage back, were there tags on it? Or uh, how was it lost in the first place? Did the tag rip off? <laughs> That's a great question. We had our own like luggage tag that we put on that had fallen off. Um, there was no baggage tag on our luggage. But there was a delayed baggage tag that said September 14th. So I'm not really sure what that means, huh. to be honest with you. That's interesting. But you received your baggage. It was your husband who lost his. Correct. Yeah. I mean, they both go on the conveyor belt at the exact same time with the exact right? same tags. It's so bizarre. <laughs> I don't know. What would you like to see happen from all of this? 
Um, I, well, honestly, I would love to see at least the people bags that were in the same storage unit. So those other 499, let's say people get their bag back. That's start number one. Start number two is I think people in this need to be compensated effectively for it. I'm sorry, 2200 does not cover the, the hassle and the replacement. Our value alone was over 7k. So there was at least 7k from our luggage sitting in that storage facility. Police said they found laptops and iPads, and those are worth, those are very valuable. So the compensation that they say, well, you've been compensated, gets nowhere near the value of things that people put in their baggage. Mm -hmm. So I just think there needs to be accountability held. I think Air Canada needs to speak up and say that, you know what, we've made an error and things need to change. Mm Because right now they're not doing any of that. If anything, they're just pointing fingers. What will you do differently when you travel next time? Well, I'll choose a different airline. There's number one. Really? You'll never uh, travel Air Canada again? No, is that the case? No, gone. Completely. And I used to pick them. They were my first airline, I'll be honest. And I told them that in my email. I said, this is really sad because you guys were my first choice of an airline. I actually generally loved that airline. And now I won't. I won't even think twice. I would, like, my last trip, I just got back from New Year's. I flew to Buffalo. In March, I'm flying out of Buffalo again. Like, I'll support that airport in Southwest before I'll support Air Canada again. Um, and I'll always put an air tag in. Mm-hmm. I'll replace my luggage tag. And moving forward, I'll include, little, even if it's a little piece of paper with my name and my address on it, I'll put that multiple times in my luggage that if you open it, there's no chance you don't know who that luggage belongs to. Mm-hmm. For people that have impending trips, what advice do you have? <sighs> Get a tag. <laughs> Get a tracker of some kind. Um, make sure that baggage tag is secure. And I don't know what it's going to paint on the inside, embroider on the inside. Just get your name and your address in there in every possible way you can. So there's zero excuse and you can hold your airline accountable if they can find your bag in at least 21 days. All right, Nikita Reese, I mean, I I sure hope you receive the justice you deserve. Thank you for raising the awareness because, you know, too often these things, they happen and the airlines, they get away with it and, and with poor customer service. So thank you for sharing your story. Thanks for having me. All right. And that is it for me today. It has been a pleasure being with you. Until next time. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.